you know, as we were setting up here, plugging in mics, doing all that, we're running a little late this evening. I found myself thinking about that old shaker medley, Tis a Gift to be Simple. Earlier mm -hmm. this evening, we watched the first episode of the latest season of Joe Para, mm -hmm. a, a show that I definitely recommend. I know that you love it. What do you think about being able to live a life so simple where going with your friend on a Saturday, spending all day at the furniture store for him to pick out a recliner for retirement. That's an event for the day. The general something to put small, in your calendar. Yeah, the the general small town, slow. We're here. Can you can you live that life? To, is it a gift to be simple? Would you consider it a gift to be simple? I used to make fun of that life. I used to poke fun and swear up and down that I would never end up that way, that mm -hmm. I always had to be in near some sort of action. Now I aspire to it. Same. I pine for it. Same, same, to a degree. When, uh, we were saying earlier, 10 years ago, I may have wanted to live right straight up downtown Minneapolis, be right in the mix of it. Ooh, the older I get, I just... I would, I, I would stroke out. <laughs> but but there's the there's the issue. I, I can do the small town living, but living in a small town doesn't mean that the issues that we're dealing with, the, the conversations that we have, those issues don't exist. And I feel like I would just find myself constantly traveling to the next place or worrying everybody in the small town, driving them half crazy, talking about equity at the at the service station or at the. <laughs> <laughs> or at the, you know, why are why are all the checkers white at, at mom and pop's grocery store or whatever? You would know? <laughs> you stand on the corner at the farmer's market? <laughs> maybe. Maybe I would be that person. So I don't know. Maybe it would be impossible for, for me to you live that kind up, of life. You could set up a change my mind table. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Community outreach. Anyway, shout out to Joe Para. If y'all don't know uh, Joe Para Talks with you, I definitely recommend checking that out. Just something to sit down with to get you in a, a nice, calm mood. You know, the way that folks like to treat Western classical music, I think this show <laughs> is that. And plus in the show, he's a choir director and his his girlfriend is the band director. That's so there's true. a there's a music tie in there. All right. Well, uh, this week's downbeat is coming from the artist formerly known as Kanye West. I think officially now it's Ye, but Ye did an interview on a popular podcast called Drink Champs, and it really got a lot of the uh, the world kind of stirred up when it comes to certain conversations, what it means to really explore redemption when it comes to this figure who has done so much for the music industry and so much more, the fashion industry, high fashion, regular old gap fashion, all of those sorts of things. So anyway, a lot of people were talking about this interview. I listened through it. I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to uh, start today's opus by exploring one of the points that um, he made in this interview that I found pretty interesting. Let's take a listen. Once we understand, and this is, I think, the job that God actually has for me, is for us to all realize that we are playing inside of the same time. There's one right. thing we all got in common. If we all in the same place in the Christian calendar right. at, at all times, we could be the first civilization to become civil. Mm. A matter of fact, let me take out the word can. I hate the word can. I hate these like in between, mm -hmm. you know, 
you can't work can and should and if it's like feds it's like somebody you think is with you they're not really with you they're like a right. fourth leg that could just right. fall anytime your whole table fall over like that's why we have to will these things in fruition so we say we will be the first civilization to become civil we still in the dark ages we attack each other mentally we go back to the rap stuff with me and drake this is we in world war three this right. is warfare right here what they do people can comment on you online that you don't know you can't right. come see right. them right. you know what i'm saying it's a career in korea the suicide rates is crazy people's esteem how you feel about yourself body dysmorphia overdoing it with the drip and did it all that so i'm about like robin hood really breaking down the class system that's why i went to the gap like people say man virgin went to louis you went to the gap i said i always wanted to create so he goes into you know many other things but i just want to take what we just heard and break down some of those concepts first and foremost yay speaks to sharing time we are all experiencing the same moment in time at the same time and how really if we wanted to we could do something with that and come together and create something new when i tie that to music even instrumental music i'm thinking about the art of creation being sharing time and doing something making decisions about that time we've decided that we're all going to play at this tempo we're all going to play at this uh key tonality i'm thinking about that the concept of ensemble, of musical ensemble, what if we could spread that out to social awareness and really focus all of our shared time, this shared moment toward one goal in the same way that musicians share that time toward the goal of performing this piece of music? What if that collective goal could be something bigger? Do you think there's something there? It sure sounds nice. Yeah. It would be great if it worked out that way. Mm-hmm. But what I immediately start thinking about is I, I would love that. And at the same time, I know there are plenty of people out there who are so hung up on what they get, how much of whatever mm -hmm. they get, and whether or not somebody standing next to them deserves how much they got. So if you can remove that, you have a chance. So let's stick with that music ensemble metaphor and sharing time. I think we see that certainly in our orchestras when we have titled positions, principal such and such, associate, principal, whatever. And then we have section violin, section viola with different pay grades attached to those things. Mm -hmm. If we're going to, again, so like I said, if we're going to stick with that metaphor, do you think a step in the right direction would be diminishing that? on the small levels where they exist with again with this example being orchestral spaces if we're going to more broadly begin to move away from oh i did this and i deserve this much more he deserves uh, this much less she deserves this much less would it be useful to get rid of that in the little tiny pockets the relatively tiny pockets where it exists already, in this case, the orchestral space, it would, would uh, putting all members of an orchestra on the same pay reverberate, have an impact more broadly, do you think? Just even just as an experiment, would that have any larger consequence on this metaphorical sort of, you know, abstract, would it esoteric level, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that it would have a larger consequence, but I, I would ask you if, you went to work for an orchestra, you bring extra skills. Mm -hmm. You you can present, you can interview, you could give a pre-concert talk. Right. You have audio and video capabilities. 
would you not say that then you deserve more than the person who does if not those, do those things? If those skills were being asked of me, I believe so. When it comes to sitting down and playing the bassoon, I don't know. And then, you know, we have to talk about principal bassoon. Second bassoon, you know, the principal makes more than me if I'm the second bassoon. Right. Uh, but maybe it's useful to explore not needing that or not wanting more. And I know, you know, it, it can sound Miss America to give that sort of answer, but what if? What if more of us could 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 have that attitude? What if instead of money, we put uh, reverence on a pedestal, achievement on a pedestal, meaning that, oh, you got you got the whatever chair, whatever the name chair mm -hmm. is, or you got first chair. Like, I know that you don't pay your bills in street cred, but what if the <laughs> what if the real value was the fact that you hit that mark? Yeah, yeah, that would be something. That would that would that would be a conversation. You also talked about uh, when we when we listened to that excerpt earlier, the idea of trust. So to create a musical moment with someone sharing and agreeing on this use of our time and specific time for this thing, you know, there's trust that's mm -hmm. that's there musically. When we expand that out again and think about this broad concept that Ye is trying to get us to explore, sharing our collective moment in time towards something for humanity, what do you think about the levels of trust that are needed there? Is humanity, humanity, I, I, I'm challenging all of my vocabulary, sure. but you know, humans as a living species, are we capable of that level of trust? towards some larger impact in this exact shared moment in time. Again, it sounds nice. I don't think that we're there yet because um, so many people are uh, suspicious. Yeah. Um, and for so good reason if, in some cases. Right. In many so cases. you have to come into the situation with the idea that, um, uh, it, like, let's take the orchestra, mm -hmm. like everybody's going to get the same. Yeah no matter what value you add to it. Okay, so you have to trust <laughs> yeah. that that will actually uh, not lead to violence. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be a lot of trust, especially these days, I'll tell you what. Um, another aspect of that little clip that we listened to, you know, uh, Ye talking about going and selling clothes at the Gap and not these other expensive stores, but a place where most of us can go in and at least buy a pair of jeans or, or, or whatever. is kind of high. Is it possible for someone as rich as Ye to inspire thoughts of class solidarity? And again, if we want to tie that to music, make it metaphorical, we have folks in the music world, in these you know ivory tower institutions making X, Y, and Z money, um, are those folks capable of decolonizing those spaces being within them? Is someone like Ye able to inspire class solidarity as one of the richest, one of the richer people in existence right now? Good are question. those are those things possible? Good question. I don't know about from him because mm -hmm. you said once something that stuck with me. If we could get all of the people who don't have and need together regardless of the color and religion and all that yeah then we really would eat the rich and what a day that would be Ooda lolly <laughs> as, you know what as I'm a saying? robin hood so once how about that how about class solidarity and looking around and going look all of us are struggling mm -hmm. just imagine what we could do if 
if we turned on the hand that's feeding us. Right. Well, uh, I hate that. I guess so. I guess it is the hand that feeds us to a degree, right? I mean, if, if we want to look I, at the whole system. I right? don't know. Well, let's wait to hear who writes in about it. <laughs> okay. And then finally, I know we're, 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 these downbeats have been longer and longer each week. But okay. But finally, what Ye was talking about can versus will. Okay. We talk about in our arts institutions, we will end the fiscal year with X, Y, and Z. We will meet these requirements per our board or whatever. We can be more diverse. We can program more diversely. I think language is significant in that way. Do you think there's some, some significance to can versus will and our aspirations and what we hope for or work toward in our work within arts institutions, whatever? I just think there's a lot more can than will. What do you mean? Well, there's a lot of things that can be done. Mm -hmm. How many of them are? Sure. Okay, so uh, I guess I'm just saying, rather than saying um, um, will be done, I don't. that's sort of a promise, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done. But and it seems like there's more of that. But do you not see or and am and, I not am I not tracking? Well, I'm, well, I'm not trying to uh, put ideas in your head or or put words in your mouth. I guess what I'm getting at is there are some conversations within institutions, even amongst ourselves as individuals, that we attach the will to, and certain conversations that we attach can to. I think we see a lot of again, as I said, we can program more diversely. We can look at internal equity. We can do these things, but you will be paid on Friday, right? That is a will, right? Sure. We will do this. We will do that. I feel like maybe if we put that will into more of the conversations internally in, in, in these institutions, maybe grumps like me would have more faith in, in the idea of changing from the inside Join or, the grump or club. large institutional leaders. I don't know. I think, I think language is significant Join in that way. Join the grump club with me. <laughs> you're, you're saying that I will join the group club <laughs> sooner maybe, or later. Maybe I shouldn't put a, oh, so you're putting a will on that <laughs> sooner or later. Okay. Well, I'll put a will. We will decolonize classical spaces. We will do that. Let's get started. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 124. Thank you so much for tuning in. You said that you weren't supposed to swear in the first 10 minutes of a podcast. Oh, is did that, I already? Right? So we're past that. Fire away. Oh, <laughs> there will be some cussing on this 124th Opus of Triloquy. Listen, Triloquy is not safe for work, okay? I feel like I have to say that at least once or twice <laughs> a, a, a season. Triloquy is not safe for work. Triloquy is a podcast that takes the idea of classical music, reframes it in a more broad structure toward decolonizing not only the phrase classical music, but the spaces that we consider classical spaces. Returning listeners, we couldn't do this without you. Thank you for keeping us relevant and, uh, and helping us maintain our spot in the ecosystem 
of classical music and liberation work within music. To new listeners, thank you so much for being here. As I said, Triloquy is not safe for work. Triloquy might it might not even be safe for some of y'all's living rooms, but you know, we Depen- will de- dependent. We will decolonize classical spaces by normalizing some of these more so-called raw. Like I don't even know if I like the idea of raw conversation. What does that mean? Raw compared to what? Or or inflammatory compared to what? I don't know. (laughs) They're true. That's what, yeah, yeah, exactly. Keeping it true. That's what we do here. So anyway, thank you, uh, new listeners, for uh, showing up and and tuning in and giving us a try. More information on the Triloquy podcast at triloquy.org. You can learn more information. You can listen to past opuses, and you can donate to the Triloquy podcast. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation. Huge thank you to them, to the Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul, Minnesota, and this week to the University of Southern California. Thank you so much for your support, for having me um, as a part of your Voices uh, uh, series. So as they talk about what hmm, they can do as far as uh, diversity, well, maybe I should even, I'll speak that into existence for them, what they will do as far as hiring more uh, diverse staff as they do that. uh, And and as a means of not putting off the issue and the point of of needing diverse voices in the classroom, they've put together a fund where um, week after week they have guest lecturers come in and offer some ideas and thoughts so I gave, I preached at the kids for an hour and a half in a in a class called Music and Ideas, a class not only uh, filled with classical, Western classical students, but folks uh, studying uh, music industry, music business. So re- a really broad class where we can have some really broad conversations. I had an um, incredible uh, time there. Shout out and thank you to Professor Vest over at the University of Southern California for having me. In the third movement today, I'm going to talk uh, with folks in involved in a new musical project called White Power Outage. Love the title. Mm. Love the title. But for now, we're going to go ahead and jump into movement one. We're going to start with some good news, at least some good news for some folks in the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. I'm going to send a sharp over to them reading here from bizjournals.com headline Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra announces labor contract with its musicians. Before I get into this, something that I was thinking about earlier, we kind of talked about it earlier, a part of the career of so-called classical musician here in the United States is becoming familiar with ideas of unions, negotiations yeah. with boards and management. That's something that I really had to jump into when I graduated from USC and moved to Detroit. One of the first emails, I wasn't unpacked good. One of the first emails was up from, from the local uh, American Federation of Musicians Union. Oh, welcome to uh, Detroit. So glad to have you here. Your union dues are such and such. We uh, take cash. Or ch- I mean, it was immediate. Just So some cities have it where you have to be a member of the union. I guess it's by state, actually, right to work. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. some, some states, if you are on this stage... You need to be a part of the union, and that's just the rule. Right. When I was down in Tennessee, that was not the case, which I think in itself 
caused other peripheral issues when you have some of the orchestra in the union, some of them not, some folks feeling like they're really pushing for the rights and uh, pay raises and all that, and other folks who aren't all that interested because they're not in the union, maybe even some folks who can't justify the cost of the annual union dues. Anyway, all of these are, are things that the classical musician here in the United States, at least, has to be familiar with because it's sort of part of the job. Sure. That hasn't always been a part of your work, the idea of being in a union and negotiations, but that has been happening for you at your job mm -hmm. uh, for the past year and a half or so. Would you, if you could go back and and change something, do you think it would benefit you to have experience in those spaces earlier than you've been having it earlier than just a year and a half ago, even aside from? Uh, raises in pay or whatever y'all are dealing with over there. Is there something about the experience of being involved in that that you think is important for folks to be able to understand and, and traverse? Well, I had no experience with right. them until this point. Right. So um, attending these meetings, uh, in a lot of instances, I just don't get what's going on. Yeah, they're term you know, They're using terminology or they're talking about units that I'm not a part of. And my eyes just glaze over. Okay. But... Okay. Um, you know, I have observed some things. I'm not going to say that it's been a waste of time by any means. Sure. Uh, but it also has given me a pre an appreciation of just exactly how much work goes into organizing one of these mm -hmm. things. And um, I, I really appreciate the fact that there are people out there who are shepherding us through this, that we have, you know, some representation that are you know, helping us to shape things. Because... Um, Man, if I could have been a part of one sooner, I think I would have been. Just to have some power, a little, because I, I guess I didn't realize how little power I had up until mm, this point. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Of, I mean, do you have proximity relationship with the general pro-union, anti-union conversation? Yeah. I, but po politically, I, that's something that I've never been able to engage because, like I said, ever since I've been working, I've been a part of a union. So I've never had the opportunity to think about being anti-union. Yeah. Have you have you always been pro union? Didn't have an opinion. I mm. do I do remember on one occasion my dad kind of talking down about them because when you're in a union you, only certain people, you know, he was a plumber, right? An mm -hmm. hydraulic repair guy. So he could only touch certain things and other guys in the union could only touch certain things. So his work would be held up waiting on somebody else to come over and do one little thing. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. So that was his big sticking point on it. I don't know how that would impact I know what I'm, I'm doing. I know in places like New York, when I've played Carnegie Hall, the percussionists will talk about, you know, they take the timpani off the truck and put it within this taped square on the loading dock and they're not allowed to touch it until it's where it's going to be where they play it because the stagehands have strong you you know we were talking about this earlier this summer with the met you know the stagehands sure. and yeah. and all of that so so you know all, all of that just to say that i think it's very useful to have some proximity to that conversation because so as you say so much goes into it there's so many rights that have been won for everybody by folks who are in unions i well, I, I hate for, I, this is not a, a political ad pro union i'm just saying from my experience as a musician you know in your experience now dealing with unions seems like a, a pretty good idea anyway mm -hmm. uh, back to this um, article from biz journal it says the cincinnati symphony orchestra's new labor contract with its musicians announced on friday is historic on several 
levels. We've been able to quickly restore the salaries and provide modest successive increases over a multi-year period, but the really groundbreaking piece is just a fundamentally different approach to the work rules, says CSO President and CEO Jonathan Martin. So um, some of the things that they talk about it, uh, that, that make this historic, you know, some of the things in here, uh, it restarts the hiring process for nine vacant positions in the orchestra, nine who nine auditions that need to be have. And so nine auditions, uh, 11, 1200 people, 1200 musicians going for those nine jobs. And Whoa. I, I, I mean, for nine jobs, certainly there are some orchestras where one position will have 500 candidates. You Whoa. know, I've been on Whoa. audition committees where there are 220 something flutists waiting for this one job. It's a lot. It's a lot. So ooh, shout out to y'all who going to listen to all those auditions. Um, it also says here for the first time, a new task force comprised of musician and management leadership will review how musicians are recruited and the processes for auditions, tenure and retention, as well as for hiring substitute musicians. Uh, the annual minimum salary uh, base the annual minimum base salary for musicians for the 21-22 season is $108,000. Players with titles such as concert master or principal receive more. Musicians also receive money for digital media. All right, so this is what I wanted to ask you. This is uh, something for us to celebrate. I, I believe this is something to be celebrated because I, I, I'm, I'm here for the musicians trying to make a living. Is the expectation of a shared celebration among people who aren't entrenched in the arts in these uh, in these classical spaces? Is it tone deaf considering the financial struggles that the everyday person may still be feeling and the lack of community rapport, community engagement that I imagine most of these people will cite when they talk about their unrelationship with their local mm -hmm. orchestra? Mm -hmm. Is it is it tone deaf to expect the the single mom, the the working man to read from Biz Journal about a $108,000 base pay and be excited? Is that tone deaf? I wonder what you think about that. It, it's difficult to say because, and let me tell you why, because I, I don't know what went into getting to that position. Right, right. And, a lot of work, right. probably a lot of screaming and hollering across the table. And, and yeah. the reason that I say that is because whenever somebody says something about my job, like all you have to do is talk on the air. Sure. Right. That's all I have to do. I hate it when people make assumptions. Maybe 108,000 isn't enough. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. But the disconnect is strong enough that my instinct would be uh, there would be no solidarity. Mm -hmm. That person that you describe could care less how much or how little an orchestra person is bringing in because they don't go. I guess a better way of me asking that question really is who is the news for? Am I just is missing this, the boat this, with you this week? No, 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 not at okay. all. Uh, <laughs> it, who, who is the news for? So we un we understand the significance of this. I'm just not personal personally. I'm not sure if I like the transparency of talking about the salaries and, and all of that stuff. $108,000 is a salary that most people don't make, that the majority of people, no matter what field they work in, make. They, they, don't, they don't bring that home. Uh, I struggle. I struggle. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying what the musicians do or don't deserve. I also am able to read the room. I feel like I'm on a community level 
that's far greater than many of those musicians, at least, you know, here here where we live. And that's a lot of money. I'm, I'm not sure how much applause that folks would be will be giving. And, and, and like you said, folks will may challenge how much you make it at your job. And maybe some of the things that you have to do don't exactly translate, but that's just the reality of it. They, sure. they just, they just don't see that. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm gonna tell you what you have me thinking about. So as I just said, so many of the things, especially in radio don't translate because when you're sitting there, you know, in front of that national audience and you accidentally hit the ID button, you accidentally hit the button that triggers a break for a national uh, contingency of radio stations and you weren't supposed to hit it. What do you oh, do? Oh, you gotta come up with something. <laughs> okay, so I have to talk for 60 seconds now and then I have to figure out what I'm gonna do when I come back because some of the audience is hearing me right now, but there are other millions of people who don't hear this, but I'm gonna cut into the music. Anyway, it's a lot. It it's is a lot. lot. <laughs> and you are riding a unicycle on a tightrope, 150 <laughs> feet in the air, with a sparkler in your ass. Right, right. <laughs> and you got to make it work. So let's go back to the the pressures of playing in an orchestra. You know, this money that these orchestral musicians are going to be making. If you sit in there and it's a quiet room and you're principal bassoon and you have a thousand people staring at you and an orchestra waiting and you have to play right of spring. You know, like yeah. you, you have to bring in the, you know, there's pressure there. You know, all, all of those different moments, you know, really learning this music. With that said, is it the responsibility of community members to understand those things if the institutions themselves don't really have measurable rapport or relationships with members of those communities? I'm just I, I know we're kind of circling the same thing, but I wonder as we move forward and we uh, continue to put pressure on our local arts organizations, we got to put some pressure on the idea that you know, a large salary like that is something that the everyday person who has not been engaged by the local arts institution, and in this case, the symphony, can understand or even applaud as they struggle trying to pay their bills for, week to week, month for to month. For that amount of money, would you go and play community concerts that would be low cost or free? Not if the uh, programming looks the way that the programming and most of these symphonies oh, still do. Okay, okay. Let's... And that's not me armchair quarterbacking because here I am. I, I, I stepped away from my orchestral right, job. Right. No, I'm just I'm just saying if that if that salary included more opportunities for more people to hear this music, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say that there's a value there that that's just then? But then I'm I'm not trying to skirt your question, but I You're always but I always go back to the programming because increase people's opportunity to hear what music. Let let's let's say that it is a really well balanced program. Okay, okay. That speaks to that community. I would put everything I can into the community engagement leg uh, aspect of my job at this point in my life. I couldn't collect a salary like that playing Schubert and Rachmaninoff sure. and go home and lay down and go to sleep at night because right. that's just not how my mind works anymore. Mm -hmm. If I had a job of uh, figuring out how to uh, uh, establish and maintain that rapport and, and that actual community engagement, maybe. I just don't know if, if we should expect that out of this or, or any orchestra, quite frankly. Um, I, I guess most broadly, 
it just begs the question, can arts institutions survive anti-capitalism or survive mm, anti-capitalist mm. thought as we continue to push that into the conversation just as we continue to press anti-racism into the conversation. I wonder if that's something that orchestras are at all prepared for, mm. if that is possible at all. When we talk about top orchestras, we're talking about top paid orchestras at the end of the day, right. as quiet as it's kept, as, as often as we don't like to, to talk about that. Money is, is driving all of this. So what happens when we take money off the table? What happens when we figure out again, as we were talking about earlier, how to share our time in a way, share this moment in time to where that money isn't needed? How will we define top orchestra? How will we celebrate contract renegotiation? What will we be celebrating? Will we need contract negotiations and renegotiations? Mm. All of these things that I think about when I read news like this, but shout out and congratulations to the members of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra bringing home a six-figure salary. I hope y'all are putting some pressure on y'all's music directors and librarians to diversify programming because I am damn sure not in favor of something like that. If, again, like I said, y'all are playing uh, Beethoven and going home and going to sleep. Because right. that has nothing to do with the vast majority of the uh, citizens of Cincinnati. So th that's just that. Uh, but I'll give it a sharp. Uh, I guess it gets a sharp anyway, because okay. I'm rooting for the musicians. We're going to transition out of this first accidental uh, with a performance by an ensemble that I think we both have recently learned about, 24 Karat Black, a 70s funk, blues, soul ensemble from Cincinnati. Um, and this tune is called Poverty's Paradise, because not everybody gets to take home that six-figure salary, That's right. right? Poverty's Paradise by 24 Karat Black to get us to our next accidental. Poverty's Paradise Since I was a little child, I've been starving. I've never known anything but hunger. Poverty. I've been hungry all my life. He's been starving yeah. all his life. Starved okay. All right. That. Let's get let let's let's create that character in our minds. Let's put this news from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra in front of him. Uh, should we expect him to applaud? No. Well, what, that, 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 I guess that's my point. That's, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. No shade and nothing bad against the musicians or, or the institution. Yes, musicians deserve their pay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to d deny them that. No. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the bigger picture. Right. I'm, I'm looking at the broadest, with the broadest perspective that I can. And that's something that I'm thinking about and something that we have to think about as we move forward, because I think 10 years ago, news of contract renegotiations for an orchestra and this large salary that they're making would have been viewed differently than a lot of people view right. it now, again, right. as conversations of anti-capitalism um, with anti-racism begin to make their way more into arts ecosystems. In 30 seconds, in, in 15 seconds, sell the show WKRP in Cincinnati to our listeners. <laughs> uh, one of the best ensemble casts of all time converged to uh, change the format and save WKRP radio in Cincinnati. Shout out to that show. 
you showed me a few episodes. I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but you have the DVD box set I, or I something, do. right? I do. <laughs> Interesting. If, if you can find that, check it out. There's some problematic race things in it, but you know. <laughs> Venus Flytrap? Oh, he's awesome. Reed is his last name. What's the actor's name? I think it was Reed Richards or something I like think that. It, I like, think the actor's last name is Reed because he was the Richard dad Reed? on Sister Was it Richard Sister. Reed? Y'all, y'all will tell us the, right. the the dad on Sister Sister Venus Flytrap on WKR. Don't you remember when we sat, we were sitting there watching it and his first first entrance he comes in and says, "Hey, what's happening, white people?" <laughs> there are a lot of the I, I used to have something like that in the soundboard. Yeah. Oh, oh, we'll have to get it there. Anyway, shout out <laughs> shout out to um, everybody in Cincinnati. I used to when I was playing with the Detroit Symphony and I was still kind of kind of living in Memphis. I was going back and forth. No matter what time of day, what time of night, it was about an 11 hour trip. You're going to hit traffic in Cincinnati. I mean, 2 a.m. Right. You're, you're going to get at a standstill. It was something else. I think I stopped there a couple times. I've never been, been, been there, driven through there more times than I can count. But we'll see what happens with them. And, yeah. this, and this six figure salary that all y'all, all these musicians are making. I guess philanthropy is about to be booming in Cincinnati. Oh, all of the is that all right? of the free music lessons that they're gonna give and Boy. oh my goodness. Oh, this is phenomenal, isn't Throwing it? Some oh, seeds. Mm, okay. Anyway, what you got? What what sort of accidental you got this? Let's week? give this one a natural. A natural. Yeah. Um and so I got a I got a an email from Gramophone magazine about a new release with Anna Netrebko and- Gra Grandma Phone Magazine. Is, is that what I said? <laughs> what I say? No, you say Grandma Phone. <laughs> Go ahead. That's clever. So uh, we talked a little bit about this. I don't know if it actually ever made it onto the podcast of, of some of the artwork. Uh, has the appearance of blackface. And- mm. And, and the reason why it perked up a lot of people's attention is because we've had a problem. She's had a problem with this before. Anna Netrebko. Anna Netrebko has had a... The, uh, uh, she's an opera singer for folks who don't she's know. Very a, famous. A, a Russian soprano. And um, when it came to singing Aida, one commenter wrote, beautiful singing, but is the blackface really necessary? <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the directness. I like the shout, un, shout out to him. I like the unvarnished <laughs> approach there. Netrebko replied, "Black face and black body for Ethiopian princess in Verdi's greatest opera." Yes, and <laughs> and of course, all hell broke loose, and all of the people who uh, all of her critics she called them low class jerks. No, she did. Yeah. So now here's the thing. So she's still being recorded and she's still performing. Okay, so the cancel culture did Does, not doesn't apply did, to her. Did not come and get her. So this new email comes out and it shows her in a very similar pose, but instead of the black, there's sort of like different shades of red that look floral coming so, coming so, up her so neck. So just to be clear, one of these th this will be video someday, so we can show the people. But you know, just so that we're clear, there was the Aida incident and then you know for her new album i think just a few months back a, a press photo comes out with half of her face artistically painted black okay mm -hmm. don't paint any of your face black okay don't paint any of your face black don't paint any of your face black just because your whole face isn't in blackface doesn't mean that you're not in blackface if you're hinting at it i, I think it was gucci or, or one of those 
uh, expensive brands a couple years ago, maybe last year, they had a turtleneck sweater that you could pull up over your face because we're talking about COVID and masks. So mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. neck was long enough to do that. But on these black sweaters was a pair of, of red, red lips, lips, you know, right there. Worst that, that was a problem. That was a problem. And that was just half of the face that was going to be covered. So we, you know, she has has taken the red the the black paint off of half her face and in the new press photos is red floral stuff on her face in a similar pattern and what you're saying is she now she does have a tendency you know to be dramatic with photography sure right so my question is is this sort do you look at this as sort of an effort of like look i do this with all sorts of different colors you know i'm gonna tell you what i'm thinking about right now uh, last week, we spent 20 minutes cussing out Norman Lebrecht for talking about what uh, Yuja Wong had on. Right. Are we problematic right now for talking about her makeup? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm asking I'm asking questions. I haven't said anything one way or the other yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm seriously asking questions. Not only is, the, is, there, is there like some sort of artistic thing that she can, plausible deniability that she can fall back on this way. Uh-huh. Second question is, is it possible to come back around? Because, I mean, it doesn't even seem like she's suffered any sort of uh, black backlash or white lash or whatever. (laughs) Right. First thing I'll say is the red face paint that has been, again, strategically placed in a similar pattern as the blackface paint, you know, so this as a means of, look, I'm not, I wasn't trying to do blackface. I was just being artistic. Even the red face paint, maybe I should, I'll make that, maybe, I I don't know if I can make that the photo. I don't need somebody in my email. Well, it'll be, it'll be in the story that's Okay, yeah, it'll be linked there. Uh, It reminds me of Maori tattoos histories at least down in new zealand the first uh maori news anchor with the traditional face tattoos her name is orini kaipara uh this uh last year maybe she's 36 right now but i'm just reading quickly uh 35 year old orini kaipara fulfilled her lifelong dream of getting a moko kawe a traditional flower a lower chin tattoo worn by maori women and then she's also able to be on the news so anyway all of that to say is that's what on into Trepco's new face paint that, oh, it's not black faces. I'm not ready. You know, even even that can be critiqued. But if if she's able to to traverse and, and, and not have any any backlash or anything, I mean, what am I supposed to say about it, I guess? I mean, I'm I'm asking questions because I'm trying to find out where lines are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious about what you would say to somebody who would come back and say, all right, you're really looking hard. I would say there are, I think, a, I don't know. I think a case can be made. The black, the blackface thing I'm unmoving on because black face, black paint on your face is inappropriate. There's a history there. There's a global history there, not only here in the United States. There are issues even over in Europe with characters like Black Pete and all that, right. that, that they're having conversations. So I, I'm not moving on the black face paint for her to come back in red and you know in a, in a similar well, pattern. Well, you know that that's and, the know. next that's the next one that's going to be fired on. That's the next one that'll be attacked, right? Well, so, I mean, th- I'm just th- curious. I mean, th- this is my why, why do why do we explain the face paint to me? The need for it. Why does your skin have to be painted a different color for you to promote the music that you're recording? And I'm not trying to tell a woman what to do with her body, but what I am saying is that 
we 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 continue to skirt this line and 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 really toe the toe the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Some people uh, get to get off scot free, and and some people pay for 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 doing that sort of thing. She gets to even you know call folks more. What did what did it say? Jerks or morons? Low class jerks. Low class. Oh, see now I'm getting mad. Low low class yeah, jerks for calling can, it out. We can. I, I I didn't mean for this to blow up like it did. I'm I, I was I'm really. The reason why I brought it in was to ask these questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're asking me, uh, a person who is not of color doesn't really have much reason to color their face. I mean, if you're trying to be Papa Smurf for Halloween, fine. I'm not. I'm not going to say anything about Blueface. <laughs> Shout out to the rapper Blueface. Right. <laughs> um, so on the latest album, see where is my Emmy? I'm always. I'm always with the connective tissue on this album. That you know we're talking about the artwork and 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 how it's problematic. It includes music um, as performed by a couple of the Connie Masons, uh, Izata Connie Mason and uh, Sheku mm-hmm. Connie Mason. Well, to transition us out of this accidental, I wanted to um, share a Connie Mason and performance we're talking about where's the line of redemption what what defines redemption when we step in it for cultural or whatever reasons so we're going to listen to them perform redemption a very famous tune by the one and only Bob Marley Choke you up listening to the original. Yes. What do you think about an instrumental uh, reimagining of that song? Does that hit the same feels? For it, hit, you? it hit a different feel. Uh, the way that he was playing the the melody line on the cello was uh, to me it seemed you know breathy and really strong vibrato mm-hmm. on it that Bob Marley does not have. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, I like it. I, I, I hope to see we will i'm gonna speak things into existence this opus we will see performances by the kanye masons that showcase more black music you really gotta search i'm not trying to be a hater i'm not i'm not trying to say nothing but the fact of the matter is you gotta search to hear them play some black music you really gotta dig and i feel like that is what should be at the front Mm. if i were as famous as they were you better be damn sure that I would be doing everything I can at every turn that I can to find some black music to play and to showcase. So let's let's keep that in mind and not yes. be and not be shady and move on to our final <laughs> accidental of uh, of this first movement. I guess we got to give this a flat. I mean, it's 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 pretty serious, pretty serious stuff we're we're talking about. I'm reading from uh, this is abc13.com. Families identify all eight victims killed in Astro World Festival. They say we are all devastated. What do you know about this story? What do you know about this tragedy so far? Just what everybody has seen in the news. I had no idea that Astro World was a thing. I damn sure did not know that there was any one place where 50,000 people could convene. <laughs> yeah. Well, for folks that don't know, there was a concert 
down in Texas, the Astro World kind of festival. festival. Yeah, a whole, a whole festival. And one of the sets proved deadly. Folks were running up toward the stage. And, and, and I guess, I don't know what they were trying to do, trying to get closer to the stage or intentionally trying to mosh. Anyway, folks were getting hurt. There are images, just shocking images that I've seen of paramedics, ambulances trying to get through this sea of people mm -hmm. in the middle of this pandemic we're in. All of these tens of thousands of people crowded together. The crowd got out of control and eight young people lost their lives. I believe one of them uh, was, yeah, um, there's a 14, uh, John Hilgert was 14 years old. Brianna Rodriguez, 16 years old. So folks in their 20s and even folks in high school who lost their lives at this festival. Such, such, such a tragedy. I can't imagine. This is my first question. Should blame be put on the talent? Should blame be put on Travis Scott? Or should we look beyond that? I don't know if the talent at a festival like this is in charge of uh, security, crowd control, no, all, promoter, all of that right? sort of thing. I, I don't know. I don't know who that would be. I guess the promoter. I just wonder who we should be holding liable, who the parents of these young people should be holding liable for, for the, for that would be deaths. my, that would be my first guess that my, my first instinct would be to look at whoever organized the thing. Something was deficient, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like there was just, that just seems like way too many people. Uh, that is the reason, one of the reasons why your mother, when you go to your first concert, yeah. is so worried. Yeah, yeah. Because of something like that happening, right? Mm -hmm. But um, also, my question was, why wasn't it stopped by the personnel there? Because there's footage of people climbing up on rigging, trying to get people who are working the show to stop, you know, to to stop the music so that some announcement could be made. I, w I wonder what sort of crowd control, what sort of announcement can be made to 50,000 people. Literally. Great question. And you talked about how um, you read that some folks, it, it was so many people, it was so crowded. Some folks over in this section had no idea that something was happening. So exactly. they're continuing on having a good time. You, uh, when this was first going around, you DM'd me talking about folks were getting stabbed with, syringes or injected or in, injected with drugs at, at the thing so that storyline has fallen out of the okay has cycle. it yeah. okay uh, maybe that was really going on i mean who who knows eight people are dead i wonder what safeguards or updated practices we need to put in place for these large concerts as we begin to go outside again or not begin they are outside but what do we have to put in place a limit is the like I'm thinking about the and I'm I'm forgetting the name of the actual concert, but that famous Freddie uh, Mercury and Queen uh, concert with all I mean all of it, it was probably more than fifty thousand people. Yeah. Um, is that is that era done? Are, are are we done with with that image of the huge crowds? Considering the dangers of that, they're done for me. I'll oh, say that. Sure. I know that's right for me too, period. I'm 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 not doing that. The last concert concert I went to uh was before right before uh quarantine the pandemic, uh, me and Dell went to go see Tyler the Creator. We were up in the grown folk section. You know, yes. we were at the top. Yes. <laughs> um 
down on the general floor. Uh, you know, it wasn't 50,000 people down there, but it was it was plenty of folks. And there was, uh, the, you know, the uh, the the acts before uh, Tyler, uh, the creator, I think actually it was uh, Jaden Smith yeah. up there encouraging uh, the 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 craziness and and the moshing and and all of that and I'm I'm not saying that's wrong within itself but here we are here we are yeah hey people are gone when the band Counting Crows came out with their first album and they toured I went with some friends to see them and there were some kids up in the front that were getting crushed and uh, the lead singer said I am not coming down there back up you know he was trying to you know he said there's there's people in the front here who are being smashed you know so. I understand that there are so, people. So that needs to come from the stage. Then I think that's a great point. It is the the responsibility of the of the talent to right, see what's going on out there. We're talking about five thousand people. Sure, yeah, a, you're right. In a venue that is much easier to control than what you're seeing for Astro World. Mm -hmm. And I just forgot the point that I was going to make because of that little sidebar. You said Counting Crows was saying, back up, I'm not coming down there, but that was only 5,000 people, not 50,000 people. Right, and I know that there are people who really just love the festival atmosphere and they yeah. love being smashed together sweating again like like an outtake from das boot i know all of y'all's unshowered bodies because you know they didn't shower and you know what let them <laughs> they're not getting my money i'm not going I'll, should, I'll buy the dvd should we even let them should there be regulations on how many people can gather in one place well that's an, there's a reason that, that's concert. why we have occupancy limits right but that's mainly that's for indoors right i don't know if or maybe maybe that applies for, for uh, outdoor yeah spaces. I, i'd hate to say and be wrong i don't know yeah well serious serious thoughts and prayers to the families of those people yeah. what what a tragedy to send your young one to a concert where they're supposed to be having a good time and they die and not even of you know, some sort of gun violence or something. They're just crushed to death, just mm -hmm. trampled to death. Like it's, 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 it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. I hope that as we move forward, going to these concerts, even the classical concerts that y'all having outside there, I, may, I don't suppose that they will be, you know, as rowdy as, you know, this concert was, but even so we, we have to, we have to revisit our safeguards, our practices for these gatherings, because this can't happen again. This can't be a, a regular event. Uh, I understand the uh, the artificial. Uh, what, what I'm losing my words right now. What do you call it when you're re reminiscing? The artificial uh, reminiscence behind something like uh, uh, what was the what was the huge Woodstock. concert Woodstock? Yeah, and and those things. I get it. That that that's a fun thing to think about and being involved in live. Aid. I, I, I yeah. don't I don't I don't know if we can do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if we should be doing that anymore. If if this is what can happen, uh, there, uh, uh, Dell said that everybody got their money back. Uh, one of the artists uh, that was featured on this festival has given all of the money that he made from that gig to relief and hmm. and other things, but. We we have to we we have to change. We we have to change what we're doing. It's. You know, one one of these tragedies is enough. Is it going to take five or six or seven for for us to actually do something? But then again, we are a society where folks still don't want to put a mask on and get vaccinated, and it's eight hundred thousand people dead. So I don't know. Maybe right. we won't fucking learn from it. Anyway, here's the. Um, it took place in Houston, so we're going to hear from the Houston Symphony to get us into the second movement. This is uh, the Houston Symphony playing the famous Nimrod from Enigma Variations. Rest in peace, thoughts and prayers to all the families of those impacted.
<sighs> it's not. It's it's, it's not a it's, it's not easy to to transition. They're on my mind. They're I'm thinking they're, about them too. They're really they're they're really on my mind. Thoughts and prayers. I'm gonna write uh, the the names of those victims down on a sheet of paper. Put it on my um on my little altar over there as I as I do my chanting in the in the morning and evening. I I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Again, rest in peace. We're here in the second movement where Scott and I take a piece of music that we've been repeating over and over again over the week. And we take the second ending by talking about why we have been repeating it uh, all week. Why is it um, such an impactful and significant piece of music for us, even just catchy while, while we're listening to it? So I'll, I'll get us started this week. We started with an excerpt from the Yay Drink Champs interview, and we were talking a little bit about Kanye West. So I went back into his catalog and I was listening to all sorts of stuff. And I actually remembered that I believe even in season one, we talked about a collaboration between then Kanye West and Caroline Shaw. So I, I took another revisit to that. Before mm. I talk about this piece of music. I'm just going to say, I know there there was a time where I was riding Caroline Shaw pretty hard, you know, concerning the uh, appropriation of that uh, indigenous, uh, those indigenous sounds that she was putting in her music, the Inuit uh, throat singing. I feel like she paid the piper and I'm not, it, it's not up to me to, to offer to forgiveness or redemption. Right. I'm just saying two things can be true. I can honor her music and everything she's done i can be a part of the critique and the challenge that's put on her as someone who has a responsibility to have a low level of cultural competency uh what 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 do you think has has has, has caroline shaw paid the piper from from your perspective i feel like there was a lot of talk about it a lot of twitter threads a lot of apology videos and it's is it okay like, for me to play her music right now and it seemed like she <laughs> submarine for a little bit yeah and now when she, now when she, her name is brought up in stories that that whole dust up was it Tanya Tagak was mm -hmm. that was that her yep, name shout out to Tanya Tagak that whole dust up is not mentioned mm. so kind of like the Anna Netrebko thing i'm wondering if it just if they just don't give it enough air then it falls out of the news cycle and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds very familiar. Hmm. Anyway, now I'm not saying that she hasn't. <laughs> I'm not saying she hasn't paid the piper at right. all. I'm just. Right. I'm wondering aloud in some instances. Yeah. Shout, shout out to Caroline Shaw. I appreciate what you're doing. I know you're learning. We're all learning. Some sometimes we get raked across the coals, as has been said. Okay. Yeah. All all of with all of that said, I've been spending a lot of time this week listening uh, to her collaboration. Uh, with Yay, and the the tune I wanted to share this week is called "Say You Will," because again, we're talking about can versus will, speaking things into existence. Um, "Say You Will" is a track that exists outside of this collaboration, but I think what Caroline Shaw brought to it added a lot more depth. So you have her voice and maybe even her choir. I don't know, but I, but I, I would believe it's just her voice layered on top of uh, the track, making different chords and that sort of thing. Right. We have solo violin, a uh, lyrical violin, copying Kanye's voice, uh, accompanying Kam, uh, Kanye's voice. We have uh, pizzicato strings in it, a really nice meshing of, of these sounds that I wanted to share today. Say You Will by Ye and Caroline Shaw. When I grab your neck, I touch your soul. Take off your cool, then lose control. Hey, 
that's some music to me. And as I as I scroll through the uh, comments, we're listening to this off of YouTube. As, as I scroll the comments, a word that I see used a lot is chilling. How that's bone chilling. That's that's what hip hop fans, Kanye fans, are taking from this performance. It's a chilling performance. Is that a word that you would use as you listen to that? that excerpt there not chilling no but listening to caroline's voice in the background here in the headphones added a layer that i missed just through the speakers mm -hmm. playing it um to me it had that sort of um artificial intelligence almost like a computer generated mm -hmm. version of caroline shaw yeah but isn't that what her and room full of teeth go for yeah yeah uh i think what what, what do i want to say I, I, I'm hesitating because I don't think Caroline Shaw's touch made the track a better track. That's not what I mean to say, but maybe what you said just adds a depth to it. That's, right. That's really that's that's really incredible. I, I encourage everyone to go back and listen from the, let, let's listen to it uh, a little bit of this uh, from the very beginning, just where we have uh, Caroline Shaw a little bit more fleshed out here. No. Why would she make calls out the blue? Now I'm awake, sleeping soon. Hey, 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 hey. That's something. That that's that is that is really incredible music for me. Now, one of the things that I was talking with uh, the students over at the University of Southern California today, I played this, and then I played an excerpt from Remember the uh, Outcast Suite, as performed by the New Deco Ensemble, the the mm -hmm. orchestral Outcast music. So we have a very on the nose meshing of those two musical worlds. We have one here that is even more integrated. It's not on the surface, something orchestral or something Western classical, but all of the things are there. Even beyond sounds of a choir, sounds of strings, we have the integration of electronics mm -hmm. as a musical instrument, something that we're seeing more and more, something that uh, Caroline Shaw has become famous for. This is, I think this is, and we, I would say this every week in the second movement, this is, for me, this is ready for classical radio. And I understand how this can be really left field for some people. But when we talk about this uh, 10 or 15 years in the future, I'm going to give you a natural there. <laughs> when we talk about this future that we're looking toward, maybe this idea of what classical spaces can sound like, you know, in the future, this this is what I'm shooting for. And I understand that's a stretch for a lot of people, but all of the classical aspects and beyond are there, and we have to affirm it as such. I'm not I'm not so concerned about people's opinions on Kanye, uh, on Ye as a human, and a, as that applies to these conversations, because look we've we've forgiven caroline shaw right on an is around here recording we can go on and on and on about the the classical artists for whom we have offered a bit of grace i offered that same grace to yay a former presidential candidate all of all of the antics you know all of those things considered i offered that same grace and really highlight and lift up this piece of music as a, a seminal work of art and i'm not even joking this mm -hmm. is incredible i hope one day more people can be exposed to those sounds 
even if that means breaking down the parameters and those walls that keep sounds like this outside of classical radio and outside of other classical spaces. Well, just to give you a quick update, we're down. We're now at nine to fourteen years, and uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> it has been over a year. <laughs> I have also heard you say twenty explosion sound effect. <laughs> Boom. I mean, it might be twenty years the way we're working now, but anyway. well, all I'm saying is. I'm not even going to, I won't even say anything. You yourself go and look at your own local orchestra's playlist, your own local public radio station's classical playlist, and see if you see meaningful change. Don't listen to me. Listen to your own ears. You heard it from Scott. You heard it from Scott. Go ahead and do that homework. I would love to, I would love to hear from y'all. Anyway, yeah. what you got as a, uh, as a second ending this week? I have been loving on my turntable. There is something about autumn and a record. Mm, yeah, you know the, right. er, the early dark. Maybe uh, maybe you're making some food, so you've got a little bit of steam building up on the windows in the kitchen. You got the smell of the oven going through the house, mm -hmm. and a record spinning. Right. Yeah. And I've been treating myself the the small little morsel that I get every two weeks is going and buying a brand new record, not mm -hmm. something used. I want to crack that thing open myself. Yeah. And I found. Uh, Lauren Hill Unplugged 2.0. You have that on vinyl. 180 gram disc. Two. Yeah. I Did you have to order that online or you went to the music store? No, I store? found it in a music store. Oh, I might. I want that. Yeah. I want, I'm going to have to go online. It's beautiful. Okay. It's beautiful to fold that out. And and I, it's just her and a guitar, different takes on some favorites and some stuff that I had not heard before. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring in one of the one of the tracks that it changed yesterday which one i'm going to bring in because i want to give a quick shout out to my friend angela she um i i texted her just to see how things were going and how work was i didn't hear from her for a couple of days and i found out she's really been going through some stuff uh really challenging time for her right now and so i changed the song that i wanted to bring in for her just want you around well, well, sh well, shout out your original pick so the folks can go listen to that on the road. Oh, uh, so uh, I Get Out is uh, one that it's talking about getting out of a box, out of classification. Oh, I see. Of, hey, and, that's 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 the tea. That's yeah. the conversation. That's the talk. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Intentional's on there, too. A really nice version, mm -hmm. just vocal and guitar. So but just once you around, there was one uh, lyric instead should have took the time and told you you keep my feet on the ground. I hope you can hear me because I know it's not profound. And then she goes into, I just want you around. I just want you around. I just need you around. When I thought I was without you, I got used to being down. Was my fault I used to doubt you? But that ain't me next time around. Believe me when I tell you Cause all my words are bound This is my cross now let me bear it Talk to me about that guitar style. What do you what do you think about that that sort of limped groove yeah, she had going it's there? A, a, like a half step behind her, isn't it? Yeah. Um I I believe she's doing hammer-ons. Okay. Which is holding a chord on a certain fret with the left hand and then you come in with the right and you hit 
a tone. Is that a so-called extended technique or something that guitarists guitarists know? Is that a part of playing the guitar or? No, it's part of it. It's pretty much a part of it now. Okay. Okay. Eddie Van Halen, you know, popularized it, but everybody does it. Something that Ye was talking about in his interview, he was like, you know, uh, I, I won't quote him verbatim, but he said, when people call him a rapper, that's code word for the N word because he mm. has done so much more mm-hmm. and has even made more money in some arenas than, you know, with uh with, with the rap. So, you know, all of those things. I'm thinking about that right now because we have rapper Lauren Hill, we have singer Lauren Hill, we have guitarist Lauren Hill, we have a uh, soul saver, you know, in her last verse with Nas, she was talking about I'm saving whole souls and y'all complain about my lateness. Okay, you still need to be on time. <laughs> Or at least relatively on time. I'll say that here on my platform. And she's done a lot of stuff and has so many talents. She can't be put into a box. She mm-hmm. cannot be put into a box. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to go find this vinyl for myself. I, I, I want that on the turntable. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any of the, you know, uh, for her, you know, her seminal album, you know, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Are there uh, uh, tracks off of that that you ever return to or you find yourself returning to? regularly you can't leave killing me softly alone yeah yeah that's not on miseducation but oh um, that's the fuji's yeah, yeah, right that's, that's fuji's technically but um i mean there, there there's all sorts of stuff i know that you know that song um may, 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 maybe i can uh find it here real quick i forget who did it originally but it's like can't take my eyes off of you not you just too good to be true there's, you know that yeah. that song yeah um yeah, this one, this one. Let's let's mind as as we listen to this. I'll find the original people. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. You be like heaven to touch. I wanna hold you so much. And long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off Frankie you. Valley is who, who they say so i did some sort of jersey boys or, or some sort of pops and that was one of this was when i was playing with the knoxville symphony and, and that was on there and i was like why do i know every word to this song right now because I, I was hearing something completely different but eventually i was like oh right that was on the miseducation so you know one of the many flips killing me softly i think is the most famous flip that she did one of the most right, famous right. remixes right. period uh but but this is another one of those so uh, again just highlighting how incredible of an artist that she is. Mm. All right, anyway, uh, today's guests in the third movement have come to Triloquy as collaborators on a on an album, on a project called White Power Outage. I gotta give that the, the boom, just the title. What do you think about that title, White Power Outage, as a, as a title for an album? Clever and it sends a message. Mm-hmm, yeah, and the message is just that. Uh, not only decolonizing, but just really challenging even the uh, so-called progressive institutions that hang on to white supremacy and that uh, and all of those sorts of things. Um, at the head of this project is uh, Nick Cooper. Uh, I guess we're back in, I, I didn't even think about this, but uh, a Houston uh, artist. I'll, I'll, the, the base for this is Houston. Uh, Nick Cooper is the uh, executive producer of this uh, project. It's 
a collaboration with artists all across the city of Houston and all around the world, all toward the goal of creating sounds that can be seen as anti-white supremacist, you know, toward that title of white power outage. So uh, I have a conversation not only with Mr. Nick Cooper, but two of uh, the artists who uh, have helped collaborate on this album, Denise D. Colonize Lopez. That's what two Ds. I'll have that mm. in the in the description for y'all. And the rapper Genesis Blue, uh, two really incredible artists that uh, sit down with Nick Cooper and myself to talk about uh, ideas around decolonist music, what this album uh, means, what the purpose is, and uh, and all, all all sorts of stuff. I'm actually uh, we're, we're gonna uh, get into uh, this conversation with one of the tracks on the album. It's called Chariot Riot. So not only is it a flip on uh, one of those old spirituals that uh, speaks to uh, uh, the flaming chariot, you know, connect, connecting the dots between those early Negro melodies as Dvorak said all the way to hip hop so we we not only have that line drawn that connection made but even in the opening here as we're about to hear there are i think i counted four lauren hill references so just again affirming lauren hill's importance to not only hip hop but especially women in hip hop this track chariot rock features Gen genesis blue who is a part of this conversation so uh, we we get started well with nick cooper sort of speaking to the formation of this project all the way into selecting the title white power outage really great conversation that i hope y'all enjoy so this is chariot rock featuring genesis blue and this is my conversation with collaborators on white power outage volume one still more powerful than two cleopatras killing you softly i got that x factor miseducated slave until i became the master i do off that thing and nothing else even matters now let's get to the topic of discussion hmm, should i kneel with cap or start busting because why these boys steady working in the fields then white boys still collecting on all the bills the government don't really give a fuck about how you feel they will Pushing crack in the 80s and now they switch the pills uh, You got skills, well let's hope that push you through Cause that second to nepotism, man who they say you knew Oh, I'm pot stirring but I'm still cooking President go say we straight but he's still crooked I ain't here to argue semantics about immigration Cause I'm ready to get the fuck up off the plantation uh. Swing low, let the cherry in my Slow mo, the bass low, make the cherry in my White Power Outage was thought up by a friend, Karen Bali back in 2012. And uh, so we had the idea for a long time. Uh, when I first kind of suggested it to the musicians in the band, some of them were kind of freaked out or thought it was a downer, but eventually they all warmed to the idea because the guest vocalists of color were telling us like, yeah, go for it. So like, you know, everybody, everybody really appreciated it eventually. Um, and then my uh, personal background, I, I guess I grew up in New York in the seventies and eighties and, uh, my liberal education and culture taught me that what we had learned from that we had learned from our past, like the Vietnam War, or the Native American genocide, the Holocaust, the slavery, like that, uh, you know, the big silver lining of all of these things was that we had learned our lesson and now those things weren't going to happen again. And racism wasn't fixed yet, but we were like headed in the right direction or something. Um, and then in 1991, when uh, Bush's dad attacked Iraq, like for the first time with some patriotic racist nonsense, the whole silver lining just got ripped away from me and our society was sick and refusing treatment. And 
And now uh, we're doubling down on mistakes from the past, blaming immigrants, putting children in cages, supporting the occupation of Palestine, supporting dictators, abandoning social programs, destroying the climate, dismantling civil rights and voting protections, censoring speech. Everything awful from our past is back. So um, when the band and I got involved in protesting oppression, we were like playing for protesters in the streets and we decided to use our album concepts to amplify their messages. And I think artists are always going to notice that war and these powerful men and racism are simultaneously absurd and brutal. So I think that's where satire has always come from. Sure, sure. Yeah, th that's interesting for me to think about this past and present sort of thing. I mean, Nick, I, I wonder if uh, the the moments that we have been seeing in these past couple of years post uh, the murder of George Floyd have been affirming in any way? Is it sort of a, oh, here we go again for you, you know, considering uh, the, the perspective you have? I wonder what you think about this moment in uh, as it aligns with everything that you've experienced over the years. I mean, you know, you, you hope that as the artifice gets ripped away that people will be like, oh, okay, now we all see it or whatever. But, you know, of course, like, I found myself all the time just like debating that, forget the like right-wing white people, you know, but I'm finding myself, you know, deba debating with progressive white people about mm. some of these basic things. And it's, uh, you know, uh, obviously like uh, I have a lot of privilege and a lot of access. So I try to use that. I'm white looking. Um, I have uh, Jewish ethnicity. So I have access to certain spaces to talk about, uh, oppression and apartheid and occupation. So I, I try to use that, but, uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, I think, uh, there was this thing I read once in uh, Hannah Arendt about the origins of totalitarianism. And I think that during the, uh, like when Hitler first kind of came up, like the, the communists and the socialists were like, Oh, okay, well, you know, we're going to win the next election now because they're going to realize how bad this is, but there was no mm -hmm. next election. So that's the paradox. Like, you know, as things get worse, you hope that the silver lining is that uh, there'll be a mass realization. or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Denise, I want to uh, turn to you. I, I love the name you go by, Denise Decolonize Lopez. But I feel like uh, the more we use that word decolonize, we tend to forget about the idea of colonized or colonization. I wonder how you uh, define that word colonization as it applies to everything you do in your work? Um, well, for me, colonization is any act where you are pretty much taking over what originally was done. Uh, so you're establishing like control over a people that were already original and indigenous and had their way of life. That is what colonization means to me. And I think you find it in so many different things. It's like food and, mm -hmm. and um, societal structure and just the way we, we live our lives. And so for me, that's really where um, we have to take a look. And for me, it's decolonized because I want people to, to realize that what we are experiencing right now is not it is new it's not the absolute you know people are like that's just the way it is that's just the status quo um but in you know that through colonization things were changed 
And so I, I invite people to like explore that idea and really look past um, what we now know and what we accept and and explore like how people lived prior to um, their original communities being overtaken. And that's on, you know, today and 500 years ago uh, and before that. So. So what does that look like? Um, as far as your work, your poetry and everything else, the idea of looking back or or imagining maybe even a post-colonized society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in colonization, it's been really it's been really good at taking our own information and regurgitating it back to us mm. as something that's new and, and trendy. Um, but I like to remind people that like through the poetry, through the work by examining like historical uh, occurrences that other things existed um, prior. And so through my work, I tend to tell stories about things I've experienced um, being in indigenous ceremonies. I really, when I was young, I was a totally um, like model citizen, you know, mm-hmm. like you win those things in school, like those little awards and everything. I never questioned the way that our, our societal structure ran. Uh, like Nick, like I have certain privileges, like I'm white passing. Um, people can, you know, mistake me for, you know, somebody else. And I think that um, there are certain things that I know that that happened for me because of the way that I look or the way that people perceive me. Um, so it wasn't until like I got into college that I really realized that my whole a whole part of my history had been stolen from me, mm-hmm. that there was things, especially living in Texas that I didn't even realize about uh, the land that I was on. And so as I started to explore all those things, it just, it helped me to know who I was um, and how to navigate just my life and existence and how to treat people as well. And so um, I think through the poetry, I explore those concepts, right? And try to tell the stories of things that I experienced tell the stories um, that my people have experienced because I don't want us to continue to repeat the same things again. And I want us to also have pride in who we are, who we were, who we are. Um, And that's part of what colonization does. It, It makes you feel like you were primitive or you were savage. You weren't capable of establishing your own businesses or inventing things or being the originator of things. And so um, I explore all of those things. And it's to me just to to remind people that we've been here. Um, Most things come from us um, as original people. And so I want people to know that they should be proud of, of their ancestry and really explore it. And sometimes for many of us, it's going towards your nature, sometimes it's going away from your nature. And you have to look at the the level of what that means um, based on who you are historically. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to turn to you, uh, Genesis Blue, because, you know, something that Denise said just just really, um, you know, 
made the perfect segue. You know, when I think about indigenous musical traditions, I also think about uh, the tradition of the spiritual, the Negro spiritual that came from nowhere else. It wasn't imported from anywhere else. It just grew straight from the soil here. It, you know, America's classical music, as I say, as that evolved over time, you know, we got blues, we got the jazz, all those things, R&B, and we finally get to hip hop. I wonder if you can speak to your role within hip hop as it relates to this idea of a decolonized mind really going back into history and in the present and telling the stories that that need to be told. Yeah, it's carrying the torch for me. You know, you have you have to carry the torch. And, you know, I work in corporate America where I have to code switch. You know, my hair is a whole thing. And I've just told them, hey, like, if you're going to write me up, write me up. I'm not changing my hair. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, but, you know, I'll be on the channel nine news saying you're discriminating. <laughs> so I think of it in, in terms of carrying the torch because you're absolutely right. Um, from the beginning, uh, the music, the song, the lyrics, the words, the poetry is all a way to give messages uh, to our people. Like it's it's a signal. It's a bad signal, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bad signal. And so um, I'm all I'm doing is just carrying the torch of that. Uh, I I love D. What D said. Hey D. By the way, that's my. Hey. Okay. <laughs> um, I love what she said about like you know we've been here. You know we've been doing this, and they will have you to think that your music just has to be about bull crap and that mm-hmm. you're not, it's actually super, super important. It's actually super, super powerful. It can change and move masses of people, which it's doing in hip hop uh, in great numbers. And they scared of that. They're scared of that because if you recognize the power behind it, it's over, yep. you know, over, you know? And so I um, really enjoy being able to carry that torch and continue that message that bat signal, but also I'm very overt with it. I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, I had a friend of mine who was like, oh my God, I went to your show. And I was like, you just really be in front of a bunch of white people saying whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm unapologetically saying it. And she's like, but what's crazy is they receive it and they're like cheering for you when you're talking about them. And I said, "Uh yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Because how else do we, you know, get to the root? of it. We're not calling it out, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. I hope that answers your question. I oh, don't. no, definitely. And trust <laughs> me, I, I I know the hair story. I, I know the unprofessional X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I definitely mm-hmm. know that. It's interesting that you bring up uh, audience. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, one of the tracks on uh, White Power Outage, Chariot Rock. You know, you open up with what to me are just overt references to Lauren Hill and, you know, you get into other uh, black tropes, even the idea of swing low, sweet chariot being a, a part of this. Okay. So all of that, you speak to these white audiences. Do you ever think about or worry about some things not hitting? I mean, does your activism or your music require non-black understanding or from your perspective, is it just a, if they get it, they get it. If they don't, they don't. I love that question. So first of all, and, and Dee can identify with this. First of all, I'm an artist, right? And it's therapeutic for me. So to be quite frank, I'm not even thinking about any of that when I'm writing. I'm writing <laughs> about, like, because I'm here having a Black American experience, a Black mm-hmm. female American experience. So the first thing I do when I sit to, sit down to write is it's, it's therapeutic for me. It's cathartic for me. And then I go to, you know, is it the 
is the messaging getting to my people? I honestly don't. Like, I don't care what the non-Black people think. I think my focus is on recognizing people like me recognizing their power. Because I think I, I don't care about assimilating to what they're doing. I don't care about them uh, apologizing to me. I, you know, I'm like, yeah. hey, we, we don't actually need y'all. That's the secret. Like, we don't <laughs> actually need y'all. So, no, I never go in with the thought of how is the white audience going to take it or receive it. I don't really care. Like, I feel like it's for my people and I want them to hear the message. And then by default, it just happens that white people listen to it and they're like, oh, oh, I never thought about it that way. Or, hey, you're a safe person to talk to. Let me ask these questions I've always wanted to ask. If that happens, that's great, too. But that's genuinely not where I'm going with it. It's really for my people to empower. So if you hear my music, it's like, I'm, we're the, you know, I'm empowering us. Like, hey, we got this. Let's do this, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D, how do you approach that conversation of audience? How how does your prose um, engage or how do you hope that your prose engages audiences? What do you want them to do? What do you want them to think about, especially considering the, uh, the, the fact that most of these folks are white? Most of these folks are not people of color. Yeah, I think like the only time I've ever really centered myself in um, a performance has been with children, you know, mm-hmm. um, involved, you know, I might cut, I might leave out, you know, certain uh, aspects of things just to pull them in more than to confuse them. But otherwise, um, I really don't censor myself. A lot of my poetry is in Spanish as well. Oh, wow. And so I really feel like I'm talking to, uh, again, like I want my people to, to understand, to see themselves. And I think like, throughout, um, I tend to rhyme as well. And so I think like, that's something that's able to pull in all kinds of people. If they can't understand the words necessarily, if they can't understand, like, if they don't know the story, they can at least like pull out the cadence and it can be something that everybody can enjoy. And I've definitely experienced people, you know, especially white people will come up to me and, and, um, they want me to kiss their babies or they want to <laughs> hug me or they want to, um, I have had people, older people like apologize to me and I can't get them to stop to do, you know, doing that and things like that. And it's always interesting to me because I feel like sometimes my poetry can be really inviting and I'm just talking about nature and I'm talking about beauty because that's who we are in essence, all human beings. Um, and sometimes that evokes the most, um, I guess, like political ideas from people. So mm. that's really interesting to me. Like I can leave out some of the more harsh, you know, uh, words and poem poems, but I will have um, still intense reactions when I'm asking my people to like stand up, be aware, um, I've always, I've also like wondered if I've been too ideological. I know that my poetry and my, the way that I think has kept me out of certain rooms mm-hmm. and off, off of certain shows and things in this community in Houston and, and throughout. Um, but I've told myself like, and it's true that I'm, I'm okay with it because I won't sell out. I won't stop. That's why, um, like all the people like on this, uh, conversation right now I've tended to then create my own because I can't have somebody to tell me 
that I can't talk about a certain thing or I can't play a certain song or I can't, uh, you know, be open to certain people. So um, I think about my audience that way. Like it's for whoever wants to take it in. And I don't mean to uh, separate or anger or whatever, but I do want people to wake up and be aware. And I think throughout the work that I've done, uh, more and more people have been awakened to themselves, good or bad, you know, because we all have it. Um, But overall, like, it's just for whoever uh, and anyone who's willing to hear. Yeah. You talk about those apologies. If only more people would apologize with their wallets, right? With their checkbook. (laughs) (laughs) That'll work too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We we talked about uh, Genesis Blues uh, going back to folks like Lauren and, 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 you know, Tupac, all those folks from the past. D, I wonder if there are uh, poets, prose writers from the past that you draw on for, for inspiration, either on the artistic side or the, or the activist side. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've gotten this question before and I feel like I've been in a room with a bunch of poets and they're like saying all of these names of poets and I'm like, Oh my God, I need to look them up. But for me, um, I think of Rage Against the Machine. Mm. I think of um, Mumia Abu-Jamal and his recordings. Um, I think of Francis Cress Welsing people we've had like the pleasure as activists to actually hear. I love Stickman and M1 of Dead Prez together and individually. Um, and as far as po- like writers, poets, I think of Sonny Patterson, who is an amazing griot and a friend. Um, it's a lot of people that are actually here and able to like speak on the work that I really admire. Um, of course, like Mo's Def. So I don't think it's like very traditional. Um, and also, I, I do want to give a shout out because I think it's so important to look at something that we understand as BIPOC people, if you want to use that word, original mm-hmm. people, is um, magical realism and that concept of magical realism. And so I think of uh, Sandra Cisneros, who is my favorite writer, uh, like The House on Mango Street, and the originator of those concepts, which is um, Gabriel Garcia. Bernal, you know, the writer. Mm -hmm. So just these concepts of like, there's magic that happens all around us at all times. And we really have a grasp of that um, as original people. So those are some of my inspiration. Yeah, my, my partner actually just finished the book Mexican Gothic. So I'm okay. you're, you're inspiring me. I'm going to have to pick that up. Yeah, it's yeah. An incredible book uh, by that author. Uh, Nick, Nick, I want to um, come back to you. You know, we, we've, we've heard so much. Um, yes, as Marquez, far, sorry. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we've heard so much, you know, from D and Genesis Blue, you know, that uh, that comes from these two different perspectives, but all toward this same goal. As you've worked on, white power outage with all of the different artists. I wonder if there have been big moments of epiphany or, or learnings considering how diverse the perspectives are on this project. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's this moment when like somebody in another country or um, city sends me a track or when somebody in Houston just comes over and records their track and I'm just like, oh, okay, that's where they took it. Cool. Like, you know, because there's, uh, white supremacy is just built into all of our systems and uh, you know, there's no uh, kind of, you know, it, it, you could, you could talk about it in any context. You could talk about it in a very personal context. Oh, you know, I just, I'm losing my house due to gentrification or you could talk about it in, you know, like mm-hmm. a generic kind of like 
whatever the most popular issue is of, you know, uh, about, you know, policing or something like that in a very, you know, in a society wide topic. So people take it in all kinds of different directions. And, uh, you know, um, in the, in the same time that we were working on this project, of course, Black Lives Matter was, um, protesting in the streets and, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. to see the nasty response that comes to just like this peaceful kind of universal message, Black Lives Matter, to see the nasty response that was formative, you know, it's like the, um, white gatekeepers on the right are going to demonize protesters. The white gatekeepers on the left are going to be like, okay, well, let's just buy some more police body cameras or something, you know, this minimal kind of lip service stuff. And, um, and then so politically outspoken artists, they, they just put stuff out there, um, trying to be part of that movement and they don't necessarily know what effect they're going to have. Um, and you know, the, the, thing for any art musical artist like the thing that you would ask for for from anyone in your audience white or otherwise is just listen to it just get comfortable with it because when you hear it enough like it's going to influence you you know you don't ha- you don't have to specify a reaction because people are going to have their reaction they're going to incorporate it just like we did because we're spending time in communities that are protesting or you know i've spent a lot of years as an activist and you get comfortable hearing even harsh messages because they're just like, oh yeah, that's what these people think. That's what these people think. And you, you start to internalize all of it and figure out, oh, well, what do I think about it? Um, so yeah. Um, I, I, I want to highlight, you know, something that you're speaking to. You talk about white gatekeepers on the, uh, on the right and on the left. I wonder if you've experienced uh, any specific challenges that sort of speak to the idea of people who think they're so-called good people? You know, we all love to think of ourselves as uh, the uh, good men or good white people or 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 whatever. Are, are, are is it a different type of challenge to engage folks? Maybe folks on the left. I don't want to you know make it too political, but people who already think that they're there and they actually aren't. They still have learning to do. What, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, every progressive institution in town um, that I know about has white gatekeepers. So that could be Pacifica Radio, that could be um, the uh, Houston Peace and Justice Center, that could be um, the Holocaust Museum, uh, Planned Parenthood, um, the uh, Universalist churches. Um, you know, I think... Uh, and then, you know, and then a lot of groups are straight up just getting Democrat money, right? Corporate Democrat money is what's funding mm-hmm. various voting oriented groups and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's a real uh, uh, gatekeeper uh, culture that is, I don't know. I mean, it's it's such a pleasure when you when you don't have to be in charge like that. I, I think I, I always think people would love to realize, like, it's really nice not to have to be in charge. You know, you can just kind of support something mm-hmm. like you don't want to have to be the one that's worrying about all this, you know, stuff day to day, like, you know, kind of, you're old, you're, you know, let some young people come in and, you know, it just seems like, but no, but people that really hold on to their little position and their, and their benefit packages. I work with the homeless. Um, the coalition for the homeless is a, is a gatekeeper institution here. Uh, the, the, uh, I should distinguish because if this is a national radio program, the national coalition for the homeless is a somewhat you know, radical and cool organization. Um, the Houston Coalition for the Homeless is the gatekeepers that determine which homeless institutions get funding, federal funding. So it's a it's a very different thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, when 
people want to hear about, they're like, Nick, you write a lot about homelessness. Like, what are some of your solutions? And, and if I start to talk about real estate culture, if I start to talk about um, capitalism or something like that, they're like, okay, that, that's way too much. Like, I didn't want to hear all that. So, um, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of things that are built into your role um, if you are somebody who's in charge of a radio station and you're getting an insurance package and your wife is under that insurance and whatever, and you're like, you have a certain, you know, you, you've been institutionalized to a certain extent and that's going to affect your ability to hear things. Um, and, you know, and when we're talking about solutions, like we have the solution to end white supremacy. Like it's not even a new thing. Mm -hmm. Like uh, slave owner and rapist Thomas Jefferson, he got it, you know, Adam Smith, founder of capitalism, like, you know, modern capitalism, they got it. Just don't let families pass on their wealth. And like, we can, ha we won't have an aristocracy, right? We don't want to have an aristocracy. So that uh, the solution is there. Real. I mean, similarly, people try to act like <laughs> Israel, Palestine is like this, oh, it's so difficult. Like, you know, people, the best minds could spend years trying to figure it out. No, Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu figured out how to end apartheid. Like they left us the blueprint. It's not, you know, you don't have to reinvent things. It's not complicated. So, you know, I think there's a tendency to make solutions super complicated and difficult because people don't want to do them. Yeah, yeah. Nick used the uh, the phrase blueprint. So Genesis Blue, we're going to go back to hip hop uh, for a minute. You know, when we're talking about um, challenging our own communities and, you know, folks who might see themselves as good people, X, Y and Z. I'm thinking about the fact that hip hop has gotten a lot wrong over the years, especially in its treatment uh, toward women, not only women in general, but especially mm -hmm. uh, women artists, women, women rappers. I wonder what. Um, is from your perspective the inner cultural work that has to happen alongside the the outward work? How how do, how do you engage that sort of dual responsibility as a woman hip hop artist? I think they're doing it right now. I think yeah. I think they're doing it right now. The women are stepping up, and they are bosses. Mm -hmm. They are business people. So even and it's like even looking back, think about the people who had longevity in their career. I'm going to say Queen Latifah. Boom. She's still here mm -hmm. making movies, running things, producing things. Uh, Queen Latifah, MC Life still get a paycheck, yep. still gets a paycheck. Eve still getting a paychecks, just starting her own show again because these women really understood the assignment, as we say. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, these guys are not freely letting us in, but we had to have a business mindset. And I think they're doing better than a lot of the guys when it comes to that. And they did pass on the what? Blueprints. So the blueprint, now I fast forward, Megan the Stallion, boss. Yeah. They tried to run her through the mud, a boss. She's not looking for permission. She's not looking for approval from the male perspective in hip hop. They're just being bosses. Megan the Stallion. Cardi B, Nikki. I would argue that the women are doing a lot better business-wise. Popularity-wise, the guys are doing great. Business-wise, the women are killing it. They're setting up themselves for the generational wealth, the longevity in their career. They're already doing it. Again, it's the same thing with the with the, the black-white issue. Like, I'm not looking for approval or acceptance or apologies from these people. What I'm learning to do is empower myself. Yeah. And I don't need you for that. And so these women have figured it out. Again, try as they may. The men are trying to pull them back. No, this is your place. 
but they're saying, nah, we're good over here. It's fine. You can, you can be on my song. I don't need you to feed. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a feature. Like I don't need your approval. And so I think that's the direction we got to keep going. And again, those women back in the day did set the blueprint from for that. And I love it. So I see it as it's already happening, honey. It's um, already happening. And you're mentioning Nikki, Cardi, Meg, and all these people. I feel like we have to put your name in there as well, considering the, the work that you've done, you know, being the uh, Houston's first rapper, a uh, woman rapper of the year. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Even the fact that, um, you know, the really big moment for me actually was being on a panel on the Deborah Duncan show with Bun B. So it's like, it's like, yeah, like, again, popularity, but I have earned the respect like this woman knows what she's talking about. This woman deserves to have a seat at this table, too, in terms of hip hop culture and activism. Um, So that was like, yeah, I'm headed in the right direction. That was a good feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that shout out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, D, are there intersectional challenges in in your artistic world you know similar to what we're talking about with you know genesis mm-hmm. blue and you know the 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 need to have the conversation of women in hip-hop among hip-hop communities what nick is talking about with uh seemingly progressive institutions still needing a lot of work to be done are, are there those sorts of intersectional issues that you faced in your work um i think in poetry like it can be very clickish. And so Mm. there was work that was done, I think, years ago by several people, um, namely, I'll say like Stephen Gross, uh, you know, Lupe Mendez, like the who is the Texas poet laureate at the moment that really like broke up the clicks, which was like who was going to be able to even get on a show, who was even be able to Mm. get on a stage and um in the activist world, you know, sometimes you butt heads with people because you don't agree uh, ideologically about things or certain issues. So there was times when, you know, you could get blackballed, you know, in this situation. But that I feel like there was definitely people that kind of saw through all of that and kept it moving and pulled people in and through and make, made sure that um, people didn't get lost in uh you know, just wanting to accept like what what was um, out there and what was the status quo. I also work in radio. And so there's a whole lot about what you think about what you feel like you can and can't say. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I've been it's been like seven years in that game and it's live and it's not edited. And so sometimes we can say things that can be really controversial and we wonder about whether financially, space-wise, and all these things, how long we can get away with it, you yeah. know? <laughs> um, because somebody, because funders, because who who walks in and out of these buildings about um, who's, you know, paying for these, uh, you know, these airwaves and things like that. I mean, we pay for them, but, you know, who controls them? Um, and so we talk about it. We talk about like, ooh, we really got into it this morning. Um, so, you know, can might we we might get some mail or you know what what might people say um but you know i keep telling my i keep telling my team and we tell ourselves like it's important to talk about your truth and what you hold as the 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 traditions and what you know about um you know your people and about your culture and not let yourself get um to the point where you're not speaking on it because you're afraid 
of what um, might happen, you know, because at the, why are you doing it then if you're, you're about to sell out, you know, the whole situation, you know, there's no real purpose and power in your words. If you're really just trying to like, make sure nobody gets mad, somebody's going to get mad every time. Somebody's not going to like it every time. And just like Nick talks about, like, there's people on all levels that you think are really progressive or really uh, understanding or they're really woke and they will surprise you, you know, yeah. any, at any time. And so you really, you know, I just work to uh, be really as real. I like things that are fact driven, that are truthful, you know, not emotional all the time. And um, and that way we can really get a, a true message out. So, yeah, there's a lot of it on all levels. But uh, I'm like, again, like I've created things of my own self-publish, you know, creating my, like my own space, because uh, I, I just can't deal with somebody trying to come and tell me like, you can't speak on that. Yeah. And I, we, I know that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and we've seen it, we've seen it so recently in this city um, with like artists, poets, progressive, you know, people that um, it's like, you got to, you have to be able to sleep at night. So you got to do it the way you, you got to do it in order to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as, as we uh, can uh, begin to wrap up, D, I wonder if you can let folks know how they can learn more about you and uh, check out some of your work. Sure. So you can go to decolonize, as with two E's.com. Uh, find me on Facebook as well, decolonize writer, poet, something like that. And um, do check out the radio station I'm on every morning uh, with my co-host Risky Serial at All Real Radio, allrealradio.com on all of those platforms as well. And we even have a coffee that we locally sourced and are distributing. So you can check all of that stuff out as well. So and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Genesis Blue. How, how can they hear? We've already heard Chariot uh, Rock. How can they hear some more of your fire? Where, where can they get a, a taste of what you're up to? I'm on all streaming platforms. Uh, you can also just go to genesisblue.com, no E, um, genesisblue.com, but I'm on all, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, all of that. So, yeah, you can really just Google me and it'll come up. <laughs> it'll come up. You say you outside. They can find hey, it. I'm outside. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. So, so Nick, uh, we, we have volume one of, of White Power Outage. Are, are there more installments coming? What, 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 what are you looking ahead to? Yeah, we've been working on volume two now for a while. It's an incredible process. We have stuff coming in from, you know, other countries, um, working with a rapper in the Gaza Strip. And I'm just like on WhatsApp talking to this guy like, hey, how's it coming? Do you guys have electricity today? Like, you know, mm -hmm. what's, what's going on? And, um, you know, uh, Denise's track is coming up. We have um, just incredible artists and, and people who didn't know about the project before now wanting to jump on it. So yeah, we're at least doing volume two. Um, I don't know how many more after that, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a project that, you know, it was timely. I've never done like a multi-part album series kind of thing like this before, but um, just so much material came in um, during the creating of volume one that like, yeah, we're just going to keep, keep working it and keep pushing it because there's there, it, people are being super receptive and it's getting a great response
bit of the student debt dub there to get out of my conversation with Nick Cooper, Denise D. Colonize Lopez, and Genesis Blue. Shout out to all of y'all, and thank you so much for coming on to Triloquy to talk about White Power Outage Volume 1. I do understand that there are more albums, more volumes coming out. I have a sample that I need to put some bassoon on. I've been really busy, but I'm going to I'm gonna do mm. that. Um, so, so, you know, hopefully I'll even be um, a, a part of this. Really incredible. I, I just want to go back to the the music that got us into the 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 interview, the Chariot Rock uh, with Genesis Blue on there. She bodied, mm-hmm. she bodied that, mm-hmm. bodied that. Incredible album. I've listened through it a couple times. So much really great stuff on there. So much stuff to really raise our awareness on certain conversations. Definitely go to Bandcamp and purchase White Power Outage. I'll have links in the description. Before we get into the final movement, I wonder... Uh, you know, I I wanted to throw one of the questions at you. One of the things I asked Genesis Blue was the extent to which her audience defines her work, defines the lyrics that she writes. Maybe not all of the audience members will get all of the little references, but does that matter? Is, you know, as as we heard, her answer is no, she's an artist and, and she writes what she writes. I wonder to what extent your audience, Scott, defines your work and the language that you use and, and those sorts of things in the radio sphere it's all i think about almost every day Mm -hmm. right now i am uh i you know how you say i am out here Mm -hmm. i'm in the streets yeah i'm outside yeah i'm in the snake pit (laughs) you are and i'm you are but you see the thing is is that that's where my work is Mm -hmm. yeah and i know i get i get emails from people calling me a sellout or you know maybe but my audience is over here they're already tuning in i need to be telling the stories that they need to hear but don't want to Mm -hmm. next time you otherwise nothing changes next time you get one of those emails you you need to just forward them to me because i i i got your back to this day (laughs) i got your back to this day (laughs) so no i'm i'm i think about it a lot yeah Yeah. Well, again, uh, thank you to everyone involved with White Power Outage Volume 1, especially Nick D and Genesis Blue. Incredible stuff there. Let's get into this final movement. We've been transitioning with trills. We uh, gave a shout out to the Connie Masons earlier. So I want to, you know, with their take on redemption. So we're going to... we're going to transition here with a trill as performed by the Connie Mason ensemble here. They take um, a little bit of Beethoven's piano concerto, the third piano concerto, a bit of the end of the final movement here to get us into the triloquy movement. That wasn't all of it. We 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 started really? we started in the middle of the cadenza. When I was an undergrad, I I, I have a specific memory. <laughs> I have a specific memory for being an undergrad. I forget what what year I was, but the concerto competition winner won with a, a Beethoven piano concerto, and uh, you know 
for for the sake of being polite, a lot of soloists will save their cadenzas for the performance. So you're not sitting there at the rehearsal watching this one person play, you know, we all on the clock. Anyway, <laughs> so we're hearing these long cadenzas for the first time at the concert. And my dear friend who is no longer with us, shout out and rest in power to Chris Waters. He turns around and looks at me and mouths. He doesn't say it out loud because we're at the concert, but mouths. Damn, Beethoven, get it over with. <laughs> uh-huh. So anyway, he Be- really Beethoven was down. good about all those uh, cadenzas. Rest in power to uh, Chris Waters. Shout out to everyone who uh, knows who he is. Anyway, we're here in the uh, fourth movement, the triloquy movement, where we really get true and real. It's going to be a little political and a little local this week. Okay, so last week, a lot of folks across the nation were voting for many different things. Uh, Virginia got a new governor in there, I suppose, and it was all kind of stuff. Anyway, here in the Twin Cities, uh, among the things that we voted for specifically here in the city of St. Paul was a historic and groundbreaking rent cap. So correct me, if, if I'm wrong, because I did all the reading I could because this is something I was voting on and it, it impacts me. What the what the thing was, it started with uh, petitions and my, and my name was on that petition. You know, folks knocking on doors saying we're trying to get this thing on the ballot to where landlords can't raise rents more than three percent in a 12 month period. Um, that's that's really huge. And thankfully, it passed, but mm-hmm. by a Three margin, points. yeah, a margin that I was a little uncomfortable with. So we have about half of the city that said, no, actually, we don't care if rents go up more than 3%. Actually, it may benefit us or X, Y, and Z. I wasn't privy to the conversations that were happening on the no side of the argument, folks uh, not wanting this rent cap to happen. You said somebody knocked on your door, and and you saw Multiple. some, and and you saw some uh, pamphlets. What what were what were the arguments? What were they saying against a rent cap? Here's the here's the issue. I found at least two mailers slash door uh, tags a day, at mm-hmm. least all of them for no. They wasted a lot of money sending them to my house, and the people that stopped by. I'm talking through my screen. She says, have you formed? You said you didn't even open the door. No. <laughs> she said, have you formed an opinion on the rent control issue that's on the ballot on question two? Mm-hmm. I said, yes, I have. And she said, all right, thanks. And turned around and left. I don't know which side of the fence she was on or which side she was trying to sway me. Do you remember what the little mailer said or what, 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 what it was the, the same, reasons it was, were? It was like the same door hangers that I'd seen before. So I'm assuming it was on a person that was lobbying for the no side. No, I'm saying, do you remember what the little mailers were saying? The reasons to vote against rent caps. Right. Um, things like this. Uh, the, it it hasn't been. This has been untried um, in, a, in a city the size of St. Paul or the Twin Cities, whatever it was. Um, there was a bunch of uh, mumbo jumbo uh, about landlords and things that I didn't care about Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) but you know i live in a i live in a neighborhood where a lot of houses are being bought up and turned into rentals so i'm concerned yeah well as i said this is like a groundbreaking thing i've seen it described in news as unprecedented on a national scale even a global scale because in most places the landlord can raise the rent to whatever he wants this place that we rent the the rent definitely went up last year and it definitely went up 
a bit more than 3%. And, you know, where we've managed, we're, we're fine. But this rent cap really protects so many of us. And, and this is how I'm connecting it to music. Okay, so let's go back to a, a, a musician's uh, beginnings in their professional career, even in school. We, we have so many musicians who come from uh, legacy households where dad was, mom, somebody was a musician and grandma, granddad or whatever. So the, the, the sort of practice of having the time to practice, the practice of buying an instrument, one of these expensive tens of thousands of dollars professional, and all of those things are normalized in those spaces. As we begin to see more diversity, more black and brown faces in these classical spaces, something that we need to remember is that so many of us are first generation on many levels, not only first generation musicians, but first generation college students, first generation college graduates. Mm -hmm. So with that lack of generational experience comes a cost. So many of us have taken out tens, maybe even over $100,000 in student loan debt just to just to make it just to live just to have a place to rent while you're in school to get that instrument save it up for that instrument and you know we we traverse the field we we traverse our professions with all of this debt that you know we're spending the the rest of our lives paying off and it's viewed as a primary uh hindrance to folks who give out these housing loans because they're like, well, you're already in $100,000 worth of debt. How could you possibly tack on to that $300,000 or whatever, however much right. houses cost these days? So you have uh, those uh, boundaries, those barriers for some of the more privileged of us, much less the folks who did not go to college, maybe don't have a career where they make as much as the uh, musicians of the Cincinnati Symphony, maybe not even half of that. We have all of those barriers. And on top of that, there are people voting against the rent cap because first of all, if you really think about it, anyone who has rented and owns understand that it's more expensive to rent. People's rent right. is usually more expensive right. than folks' mortgage. Right. So we are out here humping and really doing everything we can to pay this rent that is more than y'all's mortgage. And y'all want and and y'all want to actively oppress us even more actively say no. I don't want your rent cap to be a thing. I want your landlord to be able to charge you as much as he wants. And if that means you get out on the streets, that means your children don't eat. That means X, Y, and Z. That's mm -hmm. not my problem. I don't care. I imagine that some of the arguments against that were, oh, well, we're trying to protect our neighborhood or we don't want the renters to yeah. come in and take over and X, Y, and Z. There's a lot of the uh, not in my backyard attitude mm -hmm. and also the idea that if um, some buildings are kept rent controlled in certain neighborhoods, then a certain element will be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, I I have to I have to send a very special fuck you to all of the people who voted against that that rent cap. I'm so glad that it went through because yeah. I think it's going to set a precedent for cities across the country and really hold some of these landlords and some of these mega property people uh, liable and and accountable for the way that you know this this whole system is 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 just really messed up mm. in that way. There are so many unique challenges. Again, as I said before, there's so many unique. 
challenges, some of which tied to the lives of musicians and aspiring musicians, some just to the lives of, of everyday folks. All of these issues that keep us out of home ownership, you know, because we made certain sacrifices to be where we are artistically, professionally, and X, Y, and Z. And for nearly half of the city, for 47% of the city to vote against a rent cap, it demoralized me. I was pissed. Yeah. I was upset when I saw that I'm so grateful that uh, it has passed because that that's a huge deal. And again, I can't wait to see this sort of legislation hit New York, hit San Francisco, Seattle, some of some of these places where it's really expensive to live. Um, but, you know, I'm grateful. Yeah. I'm grateful that that happened. Maybe maybe, um, maybe I should. I, I almost want to, for the sake of positive energy, take back the FU. But it, it's hard for me to not have that that energy toward those people what would they how what would they possibly know what could they possibly understand about the daily struggles of trying to pay rent much less uh try to pay rent and save up to enter the home buying sure that's not possible and it's impossible have half of folks got to win the lottery to even have a chance at thinking about it and and you know even so it's starting to slow down now but earlier this year that was just definitely the case here in minnesota i'm sure across the country even if you had the money to buy one of these houses straight up cash you're com- you're competing with other you're people jockeying. who are who are who are uh, making offers 10 20 30 40 thousand dollars above asking so it's hard out here anyway and they want to oppress the renters they want to blame the renters for something get out of here get out of here i'm not trying to hear it at all uh there's also the issue of the police vote mm-hmm. over in minneapolis uh so everyone knows what happened here in 2020 in the summer, in the early summer of 2020, folks in the city of Minneapolis had the opportunity. It was on the ballot to transform law enforcement. And what did they do but stick with the same old? I understand there's a lot of nuance there. As a citizen of St. Paul, as citizens of St. Paul, we don't vote for Minneapolis stuff. So that that's that's the that's the business of them on that side of the river. But think about the precedent that could have been set there as well, sending a message to say no, this is not okay and we are only going to take a knee with Kente cloths. Like <laughs> remember with the folks of Washington did yeah. all that not where we're going to do more than that. We're actually going to take actionable steps toward making this a safe space for its citizens by figuring out something else with law enforcement. Now that conversation is done, do you think we will ever have the opportunity to do that again? I'm sure there are petitions that can be done, but if it didn't go through this time, I I don't know about the future. If you don't follow any black people on social media, you should know that this was surprise, not surprised for a lot of people. Yeah, I want to shout out Devon Gray, who made the very astute comment was, um, we see you want more of the same. We see you. Okay, so uh, nothing is um, being swept under the rug or anything like that. The conversations about it are happening. Um, Thanks to Devon for giving the brass tax assessment too. Dismantling the structures that keeps so many people out of home ownership, that keeps so many people oppressed, even in, in the broadest uh, sense of sense of that word. All of the all, all all of these jails that are full. You know, there's a there's a jail being built in Minnesota. It's in the city of I'm I'm forgetting this. It's not uh, in the Twin Cities, but imagine a new jail. A new place with new cages to fill with people. It's it's so maddening. But 
to break down and dismantle these systems. I don't know if I said it while we were taping, but I'll say it again here. We have to dismantle the systems that are a part of the systems, that are a part of the systems, that are a part of the systems that maintain these things. Getting out and voting, getting out and being involved in petitions. You know, I'm so proud for this uh, th this rental measure because I saw it when it was just an idea and folks knocking on doors, folks walking down the sidewalk with a clipboard, you know, seeing that turn into something on the ballot that we can vote for and then having that thing come to fruition. That's really exciting. Mm -hmm. I think that's one example of the things we can do in breaking down these uh, these systems that that oppress so many of us here on Trilic. We hear, you know, the, the work that so many folks are doing uh, in, in Western classical spaces, you know, dismantling and decolonizing those norms, I feel like that is one of the systems that feeds into a system that feeds into a system that feeds into a system. So let's all do what we can and and really think about the implications of our decisions. I am so upset. I have to go outside and stand on my stoop and drink my coffee in the morning and look at these homeowners in the neighborhood that may have voted against my own well-being mm -hmm. and my own interests. That's hard to deal with, but it's hard work, but we will succeed. Again, using that word will, we will decolonize classical spaces and maybe even in our lifetime see some semblance of liberation. Thank you everyone to freedom. See you next week.